Yo, what's good? It's your boy Double, and you are tuned in to MTMV Sports. You heard? Welcome back, everybody, to the episode of the Jay Stevens Podcast. This is episode number 88, dedicated to a man who in 1988 won the NBA Slam Dunk Championship Defensive Player of the Year, the All-Star Game MVP, and the regular season MVP, Mr. Michael Jeffrey Jordan. And as always, thank you for listening and downloading to the episode of the podcast. On today's episode, we talk a little bit about episodes three and four of The Last Dance. One reason why I trust and believe in Chris Ballard, the Colts general manager. But first... The Red Sox. The Red Sox get punished. Yes, you heard that correctly. The Red Sox get punished. Punished for what, you might add? Because, you might ask, because you don't remember exactly what happened or what infraction they committed for why they should get punished. Well, if you go back to 2018, the Red Sox got caught for stealing signs. This wasn't the first time that they got caught stealing signs. Both the excuse me, the, the Yankees and the Red Sox got warned in 2017 for stealing signs. The Astros got punished for stealing signs in 2017, the year they won the World Series. And it just so happened that the, that the World Series champion of the very next year got punished for stealing signs as well. The Red Sox did not do the same thing, the same trash can beating that the Astros did. They went a little bit different, a little bit harder to uh, to, to work and to uh, keep in sync and to keep in unison. But somehow they made it work. The, what the Red Sox did was quite unique, interesting, and I have to say it once again, quite clever. The Red Sox video replay system operator was in a room just outside the dugout. Now, this room was actually moved. It was further away than in the 2018 season. It got moved closer to the dugout for more foot traffic and for easy access if they had to ask him a question or things like that. So, the Red Sox replay room would relay the message to the dugout. That message from the dugout to the base runner, who happened to be on second base for this to work from the base runner to the hitter once again you're predicting pitches you're you're stealing signs and it's difficult very very difficult the Red Sox punishment was also very interesting as well just like the way they uh got this sequence to work yeah they got to steal signs their punishment was very interesting as well did any players get fined nah was the front office found at fault nah did any managers lose their jobs and get fired Nah, remember the Astros when they got when that happened to them, what happened with the Astros was the owner fired Jeff Lunau. The owner fired AJ Hinch. It wasn't the, it wasn't Rob Manfred. It wasn't a commissioner. No, no, no. It was the owner. So let's go here this way to see who was the primary culprit. If it wasn't a front front office, if it wasn't Alex Cora, who was also involved in the Astros sign stealing, if it wasn't the players, who was the primary culprit? The primary culprit was the team's video replay system operator, Mr. J.T. Watkins. Imagine that. So you're telling me that the video replay system operator, that's his technical name, he was the one in charge and it kept this thing going. The managers didn't really stop it or weren't really involved. The players weren't really involved. Even though the players are relaying messages, they're relaying signs onto the field, the players didn't get at fault. Nah, the front office, nah, the Alex Cora, kind of. But no, the main person, a primary culprit here, was the team's video replay system operator. The punishment goes as follows. Mr. J.T. Watkins, the man that was the video replay system operator, he got suspended for the rest of the 2020 season all the way through the end of the World Series without pay. And then also in 2021, he can come back and work for for a Major League Baseball team, but it cannot be with that position. I understand it. 
Completely get it, Mr. Alex Cora. He was also found at fault for what he did with the Astros, not with the Red Sox. Remember, if you go back a few months ago, I said, hey, Alex Cora, huh, you're, you're going to be in trouble, buddy. Two teams, back-to-back years, bench coach all the way to the manager. And both teams, your te- both times, both years, your teams winning the World Series. You got to watch your back, sir, because ultimately you may be found at fault as well. Well, that didn't happen. Alex Cora, he just got suspended. He can't do anything for the rest of of the 2020 season, all the way through the pro season, all the way through the World Series. Now, the one thing I have interesting about this, one, in 2017, Rob Manfred publicly said he would hold the general manager and manager responsible for any future sign-stealing misconduct. He restated that position January 13th in his, in his report announcing his discipline of the Astros for illegal sign-stealing. Very, very interesting that you're saying this, not in 2017, but also, what, about three to four months ago, that you're going to hold the general manager and the manager responsible for any sign-stealing, but in the very next time you have the chance to punish a manager, a general manager, what do you do? Absolutely nothing. Now, also, the, the, the Red Sox did also lose a second-round pick in the MLB's first-year draft. You may not have heard about it. Uh, the, the Astros ended up losing two first run and, and two first and two second-round draft picks. They got fined $5 million. And then Jeff Lunau, the GM, and uh, A.J. Hinch, the manager of the Astros that year, they both got suspended. Ultimately, that, that same day that the punishment came down, they also lost their jobs. Rob Manford, you had the opportunity to really just – put a stamp on this whole thing and to and to make it obsolete, make it stop, make it go away. But no, you not keeping your word and you saying, hey, if the manager and the general manager, if it's happening under your, if it's happening under your watch and we find it and we look into it and we find you guys are guilty, you're getting off. Wrong, sir. Very, very wrong. I completely understand why he may want to think that. He may want to be a little soft, a little nice, a guy that doesn't want to keep his word. But ultimately, when you're in a man of position, a man of power, and when you're in a position of power such as this one, one thing you need to do at all times is keep your word because there are always players, managers, and members of the front office that are going to try to go over your head and go around what you say to get the upper hand. Sir, Rob Manfred, keep your word. Ref Sox, don't let it happen again. Astros, don't let it happen again. I understand. Science ceiling is going to happen all, all every single year. But Rob Manfred, you have the opportunity to put your stamp your, to, to put your stamp on this thing and to make it obsolete as much as you can with your word, with you running Major League Baseball. But ultimately, you did not do that. Rob Manfred, you had your chance. You failed. Alex Cora, suspension great. JT Watkins, I feel really sorry for you, but you got put into a I don't know if you were the one that started it, but you're the primary culprit during this investigation, sir. You should know by now. Some things are okay, things like this. Definitely are not. Let's go ahead and take a trip to Chicago, Illinois, because my, oh my, this documentary keeps getting better. Michael, Scotty, Dennis, and Phil. ESPN and Netflix couldn't have put four people together better to start this documentary to help us understand and properly get the proper backdrop and backstory into this particular season, uh, 97-98 Bulls season, than these four people. Of course, Michael Jordan, the focal point, the star, the goat to many people, myself included. He's going to be number one. Who's next? Scottie Pippen. 
Who's number three? Dennis Rodman. And then, of course, Phil Jackson. Now, you may be wondering, you may be saying, Jay, you could have put Phil Jackson at three, Dennis Rodman at four. But I beg to differ. And if you watch that documentary, yes, what happens on the bench and the head coach, that's great. And with the timeline that ESPN has and Netflix has, or they have uh, collaborated together with this documentary, they could have found every reason in the book to put Phil Jackson at three, the Dennis Rodman at four. But without Dennis Rodman, this team is not what it is. I mean, yeah, Phil Jackson had the first three-peat, but Dennis Rodman brought something to this team that they didn't have before. He brought something to this team that they didn't have at all. Now, yes, they, they lost Charles Oakley, Charles Oakley early, early. I think it was like early 90s, maybe late, late 80s. They lost Charles Oakley, Charles Oakley to a trade and brought in Horace Grant. Well, Horace Grant's gone at this time when Dennis Rodman comes to the team. And I think what they did in going back to the Pistons days, they're showing that short stint with the Spurs. We get to see Dennis Rodman, the change, and how that change helped the Bulls. Oh, let's go back to the Dennis Rodman Pistons days. Oh, oh yes, those days. At the beginning of this episode, though, I will, I will pinpoint this statement that came from Dennis Rodman about how people view Dennis Rodman, even when he was with, with the Detroit Pistons. Quote, you hear a lot of bad things about Dennis Rodman, but people don't really know Dennis Rodman End quote. And I think that's very, very true. Chuck Daly, um, Isaiah Thomas, Joe Dumars, John Sally, uh, Bill Lambeer, all these guys that were there in Detroit. Uh, then when he goes to the Spurs and the Bulls, no one could really understand, fully understand, comprehend Dennis Rodman. They could say, ah, I know Dennis, <laughs> but you don't. Also, he's mainly talking about here the media and the outside people, those that are not inside the locker room. Because if you look at this and really understand Dennis Rodman and what made him up, you go back to him in high school, go back to him in college. Yeah, he could do – I mean, he, I think he said he averaged like 25, 26, 27 points a game on point. He could score at that point. But when he came into the NBA, he was looking and trying to find himself just like numerous guys are currently in the NBA. You, it's your job when you're new on your job. You are trying to find yourself. You know, you, it may be a field that you're good in. It may be a sales field or a fitness field or whatever kind of field it is. It could be a field that you've been doing over and over and over again, but a new setting, a new place brings uh, new expectations or uh, maybe a, a different operation to get the same result. So trust me, Dennis Big in Detroit, great fit. He fit that team, fit that mold very, very well. But it took him a while to figure out who exactly he is as a bas- as a professional basketball player and also who he is and what his role is in the NBA. But one thing I love about Dennis, his role did not change from Detroit as far as a role player, what he brings to the court. From Detroit to San Antonio, to San Antonio to Chicago, ultimately that beginning, I think it was like 1991, from then on out, Three different teams led the league in rebounding from like the 90-91 season all the way through the 97-98 season. Well, I think one year he averaged 18 rebounds. One year he averaged 15 rebounds. I mean, go ahead. As you're listening to this right now, go back and Google Dennis Robin's stats. Trust me, you will be shocked. You will be alarmed like, wow. What he did on the documentary, how he was talking about how he studied rebounding and how he was on the court with one of his buddies and said, hey, shoot this. Get the rebound. Shoot this on the other side of the court. And he repositioned himself, and he broke down rebounding like a professional rebounder. We know we have professional scores, professional point guards, professional, professional orchestrators on the basketball court. You have professional quarterbacks, professional linebackers. And I'm not, I'm not saying professional as, as that's their title. No, they're literally a professional. You're a professional scorer. 
That's what you are. That's what you do. Well, Dennis Rodman was a professional rebounder, not by title as far as somebody else gave it to him as this is your job description. No, as in that's what he did on the basketball court. He was a professional rebounder and did exactly that. Dennis Rodman, when he got to the Bulls, it wasn't, it was, he was, he knew his role, but he didn't know his role with the team. He didn't know how he was going to connect. He didn't know how he was going to fit in, especially when it was a time that Scottie Pippen was out the beginning of that 97-98 season. What's, what's going to happen? When he first got there, it was Michael, Scotty, and Dennis. And Dennis Rodman needed to be involved. As an introvert, we saw there with, with Dennis Rodman, he needed to feel like he was a part of the team. And when Scotty goes out, who is Michael going to look to? Who is Michael going to actually connect with to be the second man, the guy he could trust? It was Dennis. And a lot of people, you look at Dennis on the surface, that very statement I made first, I'll say it for you again because it's so so prevalent and it sticks out so well with Dennis Rodman. Quote, you hear a lot of bad things about Dennis Rodman, but people don't really know Dennis Rodman, end quote. Phenomenal, phenomenal quote to talk about, describe Dennis Rodman, the basketball player, the person, and the individual. Oh, yeah. I know I know. leading up to it, we heard it was going to be a Carmen Electra sighting. It's going to be a Carmen Electra um, trip with uh, Dennis Rodman to Vegas. Maybe I heard that. Um, via, I forget what I was watching, listening to, but someone said they had some up, some inside scoop. They actually were able to watch the documentary prior to it being aired on TV, kind of getting uh, uh, first-hand knowledge and things like that. But that was one thing that Phil Jackson when that happened, when, when Dennis Rodman went to Vegas, Phil Jackson didn't go to owners to the ownership, Jerry Reinsdorf. He didn't go to the GM, Jerry Krause. Of course, at that time, why would he go to Jerry Krause? Jerry Krause and him didn't see eye to eye. Yeah, Jerry Krause brought him in, and we got to see a little bit in this second episode, which I'll be talking about here in a little bit, about how Phil Jackson came in to the Bulls and how he was introduced to the Bulls. But why in the world would, would he go to Jerry Krause and Jerry Krause don't like him? Why would he go to ownership when there's a player on the team that wants to go away for, I think it was, I think it was a week originally, and then ultimately they, they, they lowered the thing down to 48 hours uh, for Dennis Robin to be away. He just had to get away. He had to get away. He had to clear his mind. It was what Dennis Robin did. Hey, <laughs> Phil didn't go to anybody else. Phil went to Michael. Why? Not just, his, not just, his, not just was Michael the leader of the team, Michael was a guy that Dennis Rodman trusted. Michael was a guy that Dennis Rodman believed in. He believed in his word. He believed in his craft. He, he, worked, he, he understood that Michael put the work in. So when Michael puts the work in, Michael's the one that can help with the team leadership and, make, and helping the team be better and be a better cohesive unit. So, yeah. Dennis, as soon as as soon as Phil said yes, gave his stamp of approval on that on that trip. Dennis was gone, baby. Hey, Dennis was gone, and with Dennis being gone, of course, you saw Carmen Electra. You saw you saw him riding on the motorcycle without a helmet with a bandana on his head. Then you saw him, unfortunately. Uh, think, I'm I'm glad they had that thing blurred out. Uh, naked in the club, uh, just up up there, just being himself, uh, <laughs> partying with whoever, and that's just that's just Dennis. I mean, there are certain things you can't describe. As he said, you don't know Dennis Rodman. Hey, I don't really want to fully understand or comprehend Dennis Rodman. Dennis Rodman is his own cat, but it's amazing. It's extremely amazing that Phil Jackson and Michael Jordan understood that for Dennis Rodman to be the player that he needed to be for this team, that trip was necessary. Extremely necessary. Now think about this. We all see Isaiah Thomas, and we all saw how Isaiah Thomas and Michael Jordan still ha- uh, Michael Jordan still holds a grudge against Isaiah Thomas and things like that. Do you see Isaiah Thomas letting Dennis Rodman go away like that for a trip to Vegas? I don't. I, I don't at all. 
Popovich, I believe Popovich is in San Antonio, San Antonio at the time. Do you see Popovich letting Dennis Rodman go away for a trip like that at that time? I don't. Chuck Daly, let's, let's say it what Isaiah Thomas. I know I said Michael Jordan because he was a leadership of the team. And that's who Phil could trust at that time for helping get the team to be exactly how it should be. But do you think Chuck Daly will let Dennis Rodman go away? Now, I understand Different Dennis Rodman, same player on the court. But once again, he's a he's a better rebounder, rebounder this time and things like that. Hey, do you think Chuck Daly will let Dennis Rodman go away at that time? I do not. And so I do understand, and I think it's I think it's very um alarming and eye-popping about how they knew that. Yeah, Dennis was away for longer than 48 hours. Uh, eventually, Michael Jordan had to, Michael had to go to Vegas, knock on that hotel door, and we all know what happened. Carmen Electra had to hide because she didn't want Michael to see her in there with Dennis. Dennis came out. Dennis went, Dennis went back to the team. The rest is history. One thing that this episode also did pinpoint was that 80, I want to say 89 series against the Cleveland Cavaliers, game five, back and forth, back and forth. The, the teams all alternated wins between games one through game four. And ultimately, that, that last shot, there was more detail than what we normally see or what we normally hear with that last shot. When I heard Ron Harper's voice, I was like, oh, yeah, Ron Harper was on the cast at that time. Ron Harper was the guy that was a 20-point-a-game score at that time. What happened later on in his career? Had knee injuries. He was also a high flyer, a jumper. And, you know, guys that can jump, a lot of times they have knee injuries. The rest is history. But with that last shot with Craig Elo, it wasn't just, it wasn't just uh, the shot. It wasn't just um, the play drawn up uh, on the sidelines. What was it there with that shot? It was that Michael realized that the man that was guarding him could not guard him, and he knew in his head that was a bad decision. Now, you may say, Jay, Craig Elo's a good defender. Okay, <laughs> but who's, who's, the better, who's the best player on the team? Ron Harper. So if your best player, who's also a better defender than, than Craig Elo, isn't guarding the best player on the other team, and everybody knows Mike is getting the ball, What's going to happen? Bad coaching. And I'm not going to repeat what came out of Ron Harper's mouth. But as someone did on Twitter, Ron Harper provides the best quote of the episode and of the statement. But yes, Dennis Rodman, not Dennis Rodman, excuse me, Michael Jordan, that shot there, they knew. The Bulls knew that once Michael hit that shot, something was about to pop. And it wasn't just those battles that, that Michael had with the Celtics prior, the 86-63 point game, even they ended up losing that series, or things like that, those battles with the Pistons. No, it was that, hey, we can rely on Michael to hit the big shot. You may be thinking in your mind, Jay, the North Carolina in the, in the national championship game, they could trust Michael that time too. I agree with you. They could. But going from college level, to the professional level, it's completely different. And everybody knows what you do in college means absolutely nothing when you get to the pros. And at this time, it provided so much hope, not just for the Bulls organization, the Bulls fans, but also the game of so much confidence to the Chicago Bulls players and coaches themselves that, hey, we have a guy, he's not just going to show up big against the Celtics. He's not just going to show up big in big games in the playoffs against a team that has basically ran the Eastern Conference for so many years. He's going to show up big no matter what. And that series right there was so huge. Yeah, Harper wanted to guard Michael Jordan. Craig Elo was the one that was given the assignment to guard Michael Jordan. If you were to go back in time, if you were to go back and watch that series from game one, game two, game three, game four, and then game five, I think we would understand why Ron Harper provided to some people the quote of the episode. Because Ron Harper was, was, was the guy that was the man for the job. 
Go back and watch it. It's on YouTube, I am sure. I haven't looked it up, but I've been looking up a lot of older games lately. There's a lot of old games on YouTube. We have a young man coming up on the episode on Thursday that's a little bit younger, doesn't really know, um, that hasn't been able to watch a lot of basketball that you and I may have been able to watch. But, hey, <laughs> he knows his stuff, and trust me, he actually will talk about talk a little bit about some of the things that he has uh, relayed and seen um, while, while, while watching film of older games, of games that were what? They were not viewed while he was alive. They're not live games that he watched. I had to go back and watch old films of games that were played before he was alive. But that game, Dennis Rodman, Dennis Rodman coming to the Bulls. I know I'm going back and forth, but just like this documentary, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of flip-flop going on with this thing. But Dennis Rodman going from where he was to the Bulls, the defender, the rebounder, he was a guy that Michael could trust, and he was a guy that, hey, did all the dirty work. And every basketball team needs that. The Bad Boy Pistons, I could go on and on and on about that. That series, those players there, yes, Mike Wilbon afterwards, and this is being recorded Sunday evening right after. This is kind of my instant reaction of the episodes themselves. Mike Wilbon said he watched the first episode with his 12-year-old son, and his 12-year-old son, 12-year-old son said, Dad, that's a foul. Those are two or three flag- flagrant fouls. He's like, yeah, son, but back at this time, that wasn't the case. But, hey, the Jordan rules, Jordan rules they were real. Um, the uh, aspect of Lane Beer, Mahorn, Rodman not letting Jordan get off his feet, get off the ground, trying to get, trying to knock him down and beat him up and, and knock him to the ground before he got off the ground, pushing him some some ways. I know one of the Jordan rules was push, use your hands to push Jordan to your to his left on the perimeter. I mean, all these things that they put together with the Jordan rules, and it didn't stop Michael, which is exactly why. When he got past the Pistons and he got past them, you realize you're getting over a team. You're getting over the Detroit Pistons that not that beat not only Larry Bird in his prime, but beat Michael, I mean Magic Johnson in his prime as well. So that that monument, it was kind of like that obstacle that on the obstacle course. You know, going into it, that's going to be tough. That's going to be hard. You may have done that obstacle course numerous times or practiced it over and over and over, and you done that race two, three, four times and can't get past it. And all of a sudden, ultimately, you get past that. You get past that obstacle. This is the same way. The Pistons, the Bulls, the Bad Boys Pistons, the Chicago Bulls, those battles that they had, they were fierce. But getting over that obstacle is great. Dennis Rodman is described as crazy to so many people. But on the basketball court, if you take the earrings away, the odd tattoos away, the crazy hair away, Dennis Rodman on the basketball court is a guy that the Bulls needed. And without him, I don't think they three-peat. You know what happens when we watch something good and what we're watching, we're preparing to talk about that very document, that very movie or TV show or documentary like what we're doing now with this documentary. You start putting notes down at the very, very beginning. You put the notes down to your paper. You got notes. You got your notepad. And they have your glasses on a little bit lower down like a teacher, like an old man. And then you sit down in your chair, start putting notes down. You start putting notes down. And what happens pretty soon uh, if it's really good like this is, or if it's really bad, uh, vice versa, the notepad gets put down, the pen gets put down, the volume gets turned up if it's good, turned down if it's bad, and then you just, you just forget about putting notes down. Well, that's exactly what happened here. The notes are, the notes are being put down or being written down, oh, about the first five, 
maybe seven, eight, ten minutes, maybe that far, maybe that long if I got that far. But after that, baby, those notes got put down. Notepad got put down on the on the chair on my couch. The pen got put down on my table. I got up to put that down. I sat down on my couch again, leaned back in my recliner, turned that volume up, and I kept watching this documentary. Why? Because it's just that good. And ultimately, my eyes did not want to leave the TV. My eyes stayed there and forgot about all the notes and things like that. But Phil Jackson, and it, I'll reiterate this again. I know I said it earlier. It was so well-timed that they put uh, Dennis Rodman and Phil Jackson together in this uh, in this documentary. And it was mapped out perfectly for us that three and four back-to-back on the same day so that we could see that connection. We all, talk, we all talked, about, talked about it very well about how Phil Jackson and Michael Jordan could really kind of have a connection and could get through to Dennis Rodman in this well time where his mind was a little off, a little odd, and how even how Dennis Rodman would tell you, it was a little bit different for him um, being with the Bulls and being with this team. Um, Different than the Pistons, different than the Spurs. The Bulls were a different animal, different cat. Michael Jordan was just being the player that he is, the competitor that he is. He was a different type of athlete, a type of competitor that Dennis Rodman had ever played with. And so Phil Jackson, I think, was the perfect guy to bring Dennis Rodman in. But before Phil Jackson was able to bring him in, he had to get the job. He had to get this job. You know what's the weirdest thing about this job? The way that the way that, that reporter at ESPN uh, let everyone know that Doug Collins was no longer going to be the coach of the Chicago Bulls. What do you think about that? Uh, Doug, Collins, Doug Collins came in 87, 88. Lost to the Pistons, 88, 89, 89, uh, excuse me, 87, 88, 86, 87, I believe he was there, uh, 87, 88, and then 80, 88, 89, 89 was his last year, and my, Michael Jordan even talked about how, how are you going to fire a guy that just took you to the Eastern Conference Championship? Yeah, with just one time, but how in the world do you want to? Are you how in the world are you going to fire a guy that I connect with so well that thinks the same way about basketball as I do? That's kind of the coach that I've been dreaming of. A guy that can come in and he can connect not just the people connect with the players and he draws up plays for me. <laughs> Imagine that, Michael Jordan, one of the guy that drew up plays for him. But remember, at that time, Michael Jordan was not the player that he was during possibly his best season as a professional athlete, professional basketball player, the 1990-91 season. No, this was late 80s Michael that was trying to get over the hump, that was trying to get to the championship for the first time. Get there. Get there and then eventually win that thing. This was the guy that was trying to get past uh, get past an Isaiah Thomas, get past a Larry Bird, and then ultimately when he did, we'll get there in a little bit, but he got past a Magic Johnson. Two guys uh, in Bird and Johnson that were the face and kind of helped change the trajectory of the NBA. Then Isaiah Thomas, a guy that ran the Eastern Conference, it was Larry Bird and the Celtics or Isaiah Thomas and the, and the Pistons. I mean, it was either one of them that were just running the Eastern Conference. But Phil Jackson, man, the, introdu- the introduction to the NBA, or to, excuse me, the introduction to being the head coach was a little odd because Doug Collins wasn't doing a bad job. Wasn't doing a bad job at all. We all think Doug Collins, great commentator, great guy with great insight there on the NBA when he was calling games there for ESPN or for NBC. I think he did a little work for TNT as well. But no, 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 no. Yeah, that, Doug Collins is great, great behind the mic on 100%. But Doug Collins was not doing a bad job, and to many people, it's very, very similar, I imagine this, to Mark Jackson and Steve Kerr. Now, Mark Jackson, just like Doug Collins, didn't 
They didn't deserve to be fired for things that they did on the court. Not at all. But Doug Collins was not the coach Phil Jackson is. And, and Steve Kerr took the Warriors to another place that Mark Jackson hadn't taken them to at that point in time. So it's just a great correlation, a great connection to present-day basketball, to basketball back then. Doug Collins, Mark Jackson, two guys that are very good coaches, that are well-respected coaches, but two guys also that didn't get their team over the, over the hump in time, and the GM had somebody else in mind to take them to the promised land, Steve Kerr for the Warriors, Phil Jackson with the Bulls. So that reporter, ESPN reporter, or anchor, excuse me, news anchor, sports center anchor, that was there reporting, he was like, did you go to work this morning? Well, be glad you did, because the head coach of the Chicago Bulls did not. <laughs> that's, a, that's a rough way to announce that somebody's been fired there to the masses. But Doug, Coll- Doug Collins got fired. Phil Jackson came in. The interesting thing about Phil Jackson coming in and Phil Jackson being there uh, talking about uh, how he was able to connect with Michael and how we how we changed things there with Michael Jordan well, that the plays were different. He instituted a, instituted a different offense. Yes, Tex Winter was already there with the Bulls. Tex Winter went from being on the bench coaching. Uh, sometimes in practice, they said he was there on uh, in the corner writing down notes, not there with the team so much, uh, a little farther away from Doug, from Doug Collins. Phil Jackson, man. Phil Jackson came in and, and changed Michael Jordan's mindset. It was no longer drawing up plays for Michael and Michael's this, Michael's that. Oh, you know how it is, that first Prince of Bel-Air episode? Pass the ball to Will. <laughs> yes, we all know that episode. Pass the ball to Will. Now, yes, at that team with the team that was there uh, at Bel Air Academy, yes, Carlton wanted the ball, but Will Smith was the squad. Will Smith was everything. I mean, he was he was he was rebounding, he was dunking, he was blocking, he was shooting. Even after the game, he got all the girls. I mean, he was everything with the team. So, same thing. Pass the ball to Will. Pass the ball to Michael. Doug Collins no longer there. Phil Jackson says, hey, Michael, for you to take your game to the next level, here's how you do it. And for, I think, the 89-90 season, then the 90-91 season, that was when it actually, that was when it started to click in uh, that, 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 that formula that was being put together there in that lab by Phil Jackson. We start to see that thing blossom and bloom and be exactly what it is. There's a reason why I was watching Kobe Bryant recently, a recent interview. Uh, unfortunately, he's no longer, no longer with us. But I was watching a Kobe Bryant interview recently, and he was talking about how his best year, 03, and Mike's best year, 91, about how you could, how about they, the only debate that they ever have was who was better at that time, 03 Kobe, 91 Michael. Of course, a lot of people are going to say Michael. Kobe stands may say Kobe, but hey, that is an argument for for a different day, but that year, 1991, would not be what it is today, and it would not be remembered the exact way that we remember it if Phil Jackson was not able to crack the mind and crack into the the, the philosophy of Michael Jordan's play and said, hey, Michael, you have teammates. You have teammates here. Yeah, like 11 of them. I think back at that time, 12 was a max um, that, that was on a team at one time on the roster and things like that. You got 11 teammates. You got guys here that can help you. You got Scotty, you got Horace, you got you got Bill Cartwright, you got BJ, you got John Paxson, you got all these guys that can help you. Let them help you get you and get us to the promised land. And when I'm just going to fast forward real quick to the 90-91 NBA Finals. Imagine, you're Magic Johnson. 
you're on the tail end of your career the very next year. Um, this is 91, the summer of 91 and June of the NBA Finals. Very next year will come out 92. And that Magic Johnson tested positive for HIV. So his whole basketball career and everything else was really flipped, turned upside down at that time. But imagine you're Magic Johnson. You're the Los Angeles Lakers. You were the most prestigious and most winningest pro uh, franchises in NBA history. Here's this guy in Michael Jordan, Eastern Conference, just got past the Detroit Pistons, and what he is trying to do is dethrone you, take you off the throne. Now, you have already won five rings, ran the league. It was you, it was Larry, it was Isaiah. For the most part, those three guys ran the league. They were what happened, and Magic Johnson knows what he could do with James Worthy, Sam Perkins, and those boys out there in L.A., Magic Johnson's like, hey, <laughs> there's a guy over here. There is a guy over here in Michael Jordan that's trying to take my that's trying to take my ring, trying to de- dethrone me. And it ain't gonna happen. And I wish one thing I wish this documentary did, and I will say this clearly. One thing I wish this documentary did was pinpointed Michael Jordan's flaws with his defense of Magic Johnson in Game One. Now, granted, you can say, Jay, this is the Bulls documentary. We're not trying to see. You're not. We're not trying to hear no flaws of my of Michael. Michael's the goat. Michael's the guy that is a little bit different. I agree with you. He is different. My episode. Uh, think of the title of that of uh, uh we could go today's ep- um uh title of, of the episode. We could go today. Mike is just different. I will 100% agree with you on that. But part of the reason that the that the Bulls beat the Lakers that season or that excuse me that that series and won the championship was Michael Jordan struggles defensively defensively against Magic Johnson. It was nothing. It would have been odd if in Game One, Michael said, "I ain't I ain't guarding Magic. He's too big. He's too, he, he too strong." No, no, no. I had just put on about 15 pounds of muscle because I was getting beat by the Pistons. I'm not trying to do all that. Nope, nope, nope. It would have been odd. It would have been unbelievable when part of part of us wouldn't want to believe that Michael Jordan backed down from Magic Johnson in a, in a series like that. But no, that's not what happened. In Game One, Magic Johnson was doing whatever he. Well, I won't say do whatever whatever he wanted to, but Michael couldn't guard him. And I've watched. I recently went back and watched this uh this this game. Game one of the 91 finals, I think it was on the, this past Friday. And you can watch it. 6 6 6 9, and Magic Johnson kind of perfected the backing down at the three point line. Um, you can't get me the, you can't guard me the bar. The ball is away from you. I am longer than you. My reach is longer than yours. My leg, I, I'm taller than you. I, I have the vision that you can't, that you don't have, and things like that. So it's everything that Magic wanted right then at that time 6 6 versus 6 9. And that battle right there, imagine if Michael Jordan kept trying to guard, uh, kept trying to guard Magic Johnson the rest of the series, even though M- Michael said in game one, we didn't play our best. Imagine if Michael Jordan would have continued to, to guard Magic Johnson throughout the rest of that series. Do they win? Maybe. Would it have gone seven? Probably. But one thing I do love is one, they talk about Scottie Pippen's defense which is Phil Jackson making a phenomenal coaching change, coaching move, and just get using the X's and O's of the game and playing chess there and saying, hey, yeah, I know Michael can't do it. I'm not going to let Michael try and guard you again for a second game. No. Scotty, come on. Come on, man. Come on, man. You, you, you could guard him. I know you can. And one thing is said in the documentary, there is nobody that picks up Magic Johnson full court. Scotty Pippen did. Yeah, I watched game one. What's on the what's on what's on my to do list now is watch the rest of that series to see exactly how crazy it was to see Magic Johnson picked up full court as Scottie Pippen just gave him fits 
all game long. I remember it was one time he was in the post. Scotty Pippen poked the ball out of side, out of bounds. I saw one time that was um, getting the ball, getting the ball up court right at the 10 second line. But then ultimately, you didn't try to, you weren't able to get into your offense until the shot clock was almost up when there was 10 seconds left on the shot clock because Scotty Pippen was giving that many fits to Magic. A phenomenal, phenomenal move. By Phil Jackson. But then ultimately, in the game clinching game, or excuse me, series, series clinching win in that game there, there was something that, Magic, that Michael Jordan had to do <laughs> use his teammates, utilize his teammates. And John Paxson actually said it in the documentary. He said, This is what Phil was trying to get Michael to do the entire time utilize his teammates. Michael Jordan drove, there was a double team, he kicked the Paxson, bang. He Once again, he realized, he said, Oh man, so if I drive and I, if I drive, I gotta. Just look for the open man and look for my guy. And I realized Paxton is open. Paxton's hitting. Paxton's hitting that thing. Paxton's hitting that game. At one point in the game, he had 18 points. He announced a call. It. It's like, wow. Two things there. Now, you, these, you, think, you may think these are small. These are minute. No. In the grand scheme of things, you think about it. If you put LeBron James for present day guys, I know some people here that are younger. If you change the guy that Le- LeBron James is guarding, that changes the dynamic of the game. And imagine if LeBron James is not guarding, is guarding the best player uh, in, for the other team in that particular game, in that series. The, ultimately, LeBron James cannot guard him. What are you going to do? Keep having LeBron do it? And they risk losing the, losing the series? You put the better defender, another defender, on that player if you believe they can do it. And that's exactly what Phil did. Trusting in Scotty, Paxson, and, and instilling the ability and the will and the desire from Michael to pass to the open man. Two phenomenal things that Phil did here to help propel them, propel this team to the promised land. Unfortunately, this episode does end up and does leave us off with another Jerry Krause comment, another Jerry Krause quote. Jerry Krause, once again, will look at going to be looked at as the bad guy. But remember, Jerry Krause brought Dennis in, Scotty in. He helped Michael. He didn't let Michael get away. Phil, uh, I, think he, I think he brought Doug Collins in as well. Horace Grant. I mean, these are so, Ron Harper, so many players that were at Jerry Krause's disposal. As bad as a guy that Jerry Krause is, and as bad as, as many of us don't like Jerry Krause, the person for how he dealt with people, he was not a very good people person. Man, put the team together, he did that not once, but twice. Not one three-peat, but two. Let's go ahead and move away from the documentary to the draft. Not the NBA draft, continuing that NBA theme or basketball theme that we have had so far uh, for most of this podcast itself. No, the NFL draft. And I want to start by saying bravo. Before we get to the NFL draft and things that I loved about it, bravo to ESPN. Trey Wingo, Reese Davis, navigating that thing virtual style. I understand Reese Davis and ABC were less viewed than what was going on on ESPN. But hey, guys, they both did a phenomenal job. Neil Kuyper Jr., Lewis Riddick. Daniel Jeremiah, phenomenal. I'm not going to name all the guys, but those three names stick out to me very, very well because Daniel Jeremiah is not used to ESPN, the protocol, the way they do things, someone different in his ear. But, hey, it didn't matter. He still was right on cue. Announcers was top-notch every time. Phenomenal job. Trey Wingo, I could only imagine what was going through his head when they said, hey, we're going to go through with the draft, and it's going to be virtual. Oh, that brings on a whole different problem, a lot more, a big dilemma. But you know what happened? They showed up, they showed out, and that is what professionals do. But in this NFL draft, one thing that stuck out to me, like I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, is Mr. Chris Ballard. I could have talked about one thing I didn't like in this draft, Jordan Love going to the Packers. I'm not going to do that. 
not going to do that at all. There have been enough people, that, and there will be more people that continue to talk about that that dread that that pick, that draft pick, and then we'll continue to talk about that on and go on and on and on and on and on. That's not me. Someone else can talk about that. I want to end this episode on a positive note. Mr. Chris Ballard, when he got the job as the Indianapolis Colts GM, was well, he walked into a mess. Ryan Grigson gave him a mess. You know how it is when you're playing cards? I played Euchre. I played Tonk. I played Spades. I played all of them. Yes, I'm a black man. You know, black people don't normally play the game with Euchre. We play Spades. Hey, I played all. I played both of them. Spades, Euchre, Tonk. It don't matter. In high school, Tonk was a game, and we played that all the time. And trust me, we talk trash. We got on somebody else's case, and ultimately, we left that thing. We left that table where we played, and everyone left happy, very, very happy. But Chris Ballard was dealt a bad hand every time. Every he walked into it. He he knew when he was in KC. He knew that if he took this job in Indianapolis. What was in front of him was a mess, a huge mess. And he said, huh, well, I know how I want to build a team, and I know exactly um, the formula to do said thing, uh, to build said team. So what are we going to do? Build the team the proper way, the, te- the way that I see the team being built so that we can win a Super Bowl. And ultimately, he's going and he's getting closer and closer and closer to having the team built the way that he wants it to be. Before this offseason, there was a dilemma. Before we get to the draft, he had a dilemma. He had to talk to his left tackle, a guy that had been kind of the staple of the offensive line over the past 10 years, a f- multiple quarterbacks that he had blocked for, and a guy that prior to the 2019 season, he saw Andrew luck when he was contemplating retirement when he was talk, getting his thoughts out and he was talking to his people his that he consults with or make, when making big major decisions and he and he saw Andrew Luck retire he was on the field when the announcement came out that Andrew Luck retired from the National Football League they were teammates I mean he, he they were teammates and all, all this stuff he was there and in the back of his mind he's thinking wow I'm on the same age is it time for me to hang it up well Chris Ballard I don't know if it was him I don't know if it's Costanzo I don't know what it is but Costanzo and Ballard had a meeting. They, they reconciled or they, they came to senses. And Anthony Costanzo ended up re-signing with the Indianapolis Colts. So that left tackle, the old line is solidified. But the Colts had these issues or these question marks going into the offseason. Quarterback, wide receiver, tight end, defensive tackle, and defensive back. You could say, Jay, that's a lot. <laughs> Wait, that is a lot of issues. Yes, well, one by one, Chris Ballard started some before the draft, some during the draft, started to solidify to get this team going, not just this year, but for years and years and year two, year three, year four, year five, from now to be the team that he wants it to be. At the quarterback position in the offseason, before the draft, he did end up signing Phillip Rivers. And you may say, Jay, Phillip Rivers is on the back half, the back nine of his career. I will say, yes, you are correct. You could say, Jay, Phillip Rivers only signed a one-year contract. I will say, yes, you are correct once again. Wow, you're on a roll. Keep going. You could say, Jay, do you trust Phillip Rivers? Not really, but if he's a stopgap, but he's a guy that's a veteran that, well, you're not asking him to be a Tom Brady at times, and he won the Super Bowls where multiple times Tom Brady had to make um, uh, game-winning drives, and he had to, he had to throw for 40, 500 yards. No, not that kind of guy. All we're needing him to do is be a leader, be a vet, and to make good decisions. 
He's not going to be a top quarterback. He's not going to be a bottom feeder. He'll be average, maybe slightly above average, but a guy that could be a veteran in the locker room that can get guys on the same page and that can propel this team to win. Also, in the draft, in the fourth round, a guy that some people thought will go a little bit earlier. I know my buddy that's a Patriots fan. He was hoping that this guy would go to the Patriots, but that didn't happen. Jacob Eason. Jacob Eason's a guy that, well, he's not being asked to start right now. He's not being asked to play right now. No, he's being asked to learn under Philip Rivers, a veteran, Jacoby Brissett, a guy that's been around for a while, and just learn, soak it up, digest it, be a sponge, because ultimately, maybe next year, if Philip Rivers doesn't get re-signed, maybe the year after yet, but very, very soon, by year, year two of your contract or year three of your career, you will be playing and probably being the starting quarterback of the Indianapolis Colts. That wide receiver position that seemed like everybody in their mama got hurt last year on the wide receivers, including T.Y. Hilton, who gets hurt all the time. Ultimately, what happened that in the draft, Michael Pittman Jr., a guy that a lot of Indianapolis Colts fans wanted, local sports radio host, like I have mentioned, they wanted him when I was when I had Ryan Roberts of NFL Draft Bible on. I mentioned that very aspect. But Michael Pittman Jr., a guy that you can line up aside on the opposite side of T.Y. Hilton, and ultimately, hey, down the road, that could be a dynamic tandem. Oh, let's keep going. In the offseason prior to the draft, brought in Trey Burton from the Bears. If you remember, Eric Ebron, two years ago, the 2018 season, had a career year, was a pro bowler, a guy that kind of just uh, blew up, which is out of nowhere. Decided, he, decided, he decided that he figured out how to catch the ball. Last year, what happened? He went back to those old Detroit Lions guys. Detroit Lions days, ultimately, last year, last year in the middle of the year, Put himself on IR. That's what all the accounts say. Put himself on IR out of the blue. He had an injury nobody knew about, and the rest is history. He's no longer here. There with the Pittsburgh Steelers. So we had to bring in Trey Burton. Now the defensive tackle position. He there was a trade for the 13th, 13th pick of this draft, and when that went down, I'm thinking to myself. Um, okay, Chris Ballard, I thought that was a prime pick for us. I thought it was a prime pick for the team. What are you doing? Well, we ultimately ultimately brought in DeForest Buckner. With that trade, then later on, brought in a hometown kid from Warren Central High School in Indianapolis, Indiana. If you, if you have not heard of that name or uh, if you have not heard of that school, Jeff George, former quarterback in the, of the Indianapolis Colts in the NFL, went to the Warren, Cent- Warren Central High School. Those of you that are Purdue Boilermakers, David Bell went to Warren Central High School, wide receiver there as well. So just to give that connection there, but Sheldon Day comes home. Uh, defensive tackle going to be in rotation to Forrest Buckner starter. Great job. Defensive back position. Huge. Cornerbacks have been an issue. Secondary has been an issue for the Colts for quite a while. We, you think you get one young guys, you get, you get them in the draft, and then ultimately they're going to be exactly what you need. Man, guys get hurt. Guys don't learn as, as fast as you think they would. You got a guy out there in Rockets said last year, a rookie who was getting picked on, but what? He was a rookie in the National Football League. So instead of just keeping the rookie out there and keeping the guy out there to get eight alive, no. Xavier Woods from the Minnesota Vikings came in. It's going to be here with the Colts to do what? <laughs> help that back in. Help the secondary to be even better and to improve. Also, last but not least, the way to improve the run game, which is big. It's very, very big in how Chris Ballard wants to build a team. We already have the Colts already have Marlon back Marlon Mack. They brought in Wisconsin running back, former Wisconsin running back, into the draft. Drafted him, I think, in the second or third, second round, maybe third. I forget the exact uh, round that he got drafted in, but Jonathan Taylor, Marlon Mack, Jonathan Taylor in the backfield, Quentin Nelson in the crew, blocking for those, those two guys. Man, Ooh, man, as a Colts fan, I'm excited. But also, as a football fan, this is the kind of football that I love. And ultimately, Chris Ballard deserves a hand clap as well. 
because with the deck of hand, with the with the with the hand that he was dealt when he first got there and took the job with the Indianapolis Colts, he had one decision: Am I going to continue this mess, or am I going to pick up the pieces, put the put the puzzle together, and build this thing the way that I believe it should be? He ultimately put the puzzle together, built the team the way that he knows that he believes the team should be built to win. And ultimately, right now, guys, the rest is history. In the fall, watch out for the Indianapolis Colts. Thank you for listening to the episode of the Jay Stevens Podcast. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at jstephen 7 If you're not on Twitter and you would love to connect with the podcast, send your emails to jstevenspod at gmail.com. Remember to always subscribe, rate, and review. It's a great way for people that are searching for a new podcast to listen to to come across this one. Then remember to always get the word out about the podcast via word of mouth. The things that we enjoy in life, we are more willing and somewhat wired to tell other people about. So no matter if this was your first episode or if you have been listening since episode one, be sure to let people know about the podcast. This has been episode 88 of the JT Podcast. I'll see you next time. Bye.